This is the Agony of Defeat podcast. Yes, it is. We are back, baby. After a long hiatus. A two-year hiatus, but we're not going away. And we're, we're better than ever. Oh, if you say so. <laughs> this is Jonathan Weiler in Global Studies at UNC. Yeah, and I'm Matt Andrews. I'm a historian of uh, sports and politics here at UNC Chapel Hill. And we love to talk about the intersection of sports, politics, and history. And so today what we wanted to talk about was actually the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City. Friday is the 50th anniversary of the opening ceremony of those games. Where were you in 1968, October of 1968? I was not quite three years old. Okay, I was not quite three months old. You were not quite three (laughs) months old. Um, I'm sure you were a very cute baby, though. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So um, if there's one thing that I think everybody knows about the 1968 Summer Olympics, if they know anything, it's Tommy Smith and... John Carlos, the two American runners who raised black fist salutes during the Star-Spangled Banner uh, after an event. Yeah, and in some ways, isn't that the the iconic photograph of the 1960s? I mean, what other one particular moment right. you know, sort of captures the, right. the, the anger and the rage right. of the decade? Right. Maybe King at the Washington Monument, just yeah. in terms of iconic. But yeah, there's the Napalm Girl Vietnam photo, but girl. in the United States, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so everybody, I think, knows something about that, but there's a... There's a really interesting, deeper story to Smith and Carlos that we want to talk about today. But we also want to talk about all of the other fascinating global currents, yeah. uh, east and west and north and south, that came together in Mexico City in 1968. So that's what we want to focus yeah, on Yeah, the Olympic today. Games were always political. I'm not sure there was ever a more politicized Olympic Games than the 68 Games in Mexico City. Yeah, so Matt, to kick us off, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the what the Mexican government hoped to accomplish sure. uh, with the launching of the 1968 Summer Olympics and then what actually, ha- and then we can talk about what actually happened. Different nations use the games to tell story about themselves. For example, four years before, the Japanese had used the Tokyo Olympic Games of 1964 to sort of tell a story about Japanese modernism. Japan has has risen from the ashes, and so the Mexican organizers were trying to use the Olympic Games to tell the rest of the world that they were. Um, not a nation just of ruins and huts on the beach, but they were a modern, thoroughly industrialized country. Um, They brought the nation in. They had cleaned Mexico City up. They had whitewashed the city. They had brilliant colors everywhere. And they're really trying to use the games to tell a story about Mexican modernism. And they, they built big new highways in the middle of Mexico yeah, City. Yeah, well, right? not as much as the Japanese had done, certainly, mm-hmm. for in Tokyo in 1964. What they really did is they kind of cleaned the city up. Okay. Yeah, and, okay. And, and, and made it colorful. There actually are these remarkable photographs of how colorful the city was. And the hope was people will see Mexico City on television, on these brand new things called color televisions, and they'll be entranced by the by the city. So just a just a quick comment. Uh, this is something uh, David Goldblatt, the great uh, author, mm-hmm. uh, mentions in his book that television, of course, becomes a major force in sports in the 1960s. Yes. And yeah. in the Olympics. And the intention, of course, of the promoters of the games is that they will be able to use television to broadcast their version of reality to the entire world. Right. But television also has this other effect, which is that it makes those games 
an ideal venue for counter-protest. Yes, and you think about how tailor-made the Olympic Games are for television. You have the Cold War soap opera going on. You, know, you just turn on the TV, you have an instant rooting interest, East versus West. And of course, you know, looking forward four years later, you think about why is Black September going to do what they did, where they did it? Um, they're going to commit that terroristic act at the Olympic Games because the whole world is there and the whole thing is on television and they yeah. can get their political point across. Right, right. The, the whole world is watching. The right? whole world which is watching, is, yeah, is, as they said, yeah. Which is one of the kind of slogans of that era of activism. Well, and this is what worries the Mexican government so much is before the games begin, student protesters start using the rhetoric of the games and the spaces of the games to make an explicit protest against the government of Mexico, against the Ordaz government. Um, they, the Ordaz government, it's called 1968, the year of Olympics, and the students said, no, 1968, year of repression. Our government doesn't let us vote. We don't have freedom of the press. We don't have freedom of speech. And Ordaz, the, the, the head of the PRI and the, and the head of the Mexican government, he's terrified because the world's about to come in, watch these um, – the world's about to come in and play sports, and so he wants to get rid of these activists – so in order to do so, well, what happens on October 2nd? This is 10 days before the opening ceremony. Students are protesting in a Mexico City square. Ordaz sends in the troops. They block the exits to the square. They have snipers on the balconies. It's a disputed moment. It's a moment that took decades for the full story to, to come out. But 300 Mexican students are massacred by the Mexican military forces, scores more are brought into detention camps. They are tortured. They are tortured while the games are going on. The protests went away, right? That's one of the ways you can deal with protest in 1968 is blunt force. And the games went on without a hitch. And before we get to Smith and Carlos, yeah, um, who in many ways are going to be the, the key story of the games, uh, there's another really interesting story, uh, which is of a Czech gymnast, uh, Vera Cheslovska. Vera Cheslovska, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you say the protest in 1968, I think most people in the United States think of Smith and Carlos. I don't know this for a fact, but I assume if you say the protest in Prague, what most Czechs think of is Vera Cheslovska. Mm -hmm. Vera Choslovska was one of the great female gymnasts of the 1960s. She won seven gold medals. She'd won the all-around four years earlier in, in Tokyo. Vera Choslovska was politically minded. And think about what's happening in Prague in 1968. We have the Prague Spring going on, this reformist movement, sort of like what the Mexican students were trying to do in, in Mexico City. This is what they're doing in, in Prague. And it's just um, a, a month or two before the Olympic Games begin, that reform movement is, is crushed, right? It's Brezhnev who sends in the tanks and they, they put an end to the Prague Spring. They, they invade the, the country, and the Czechs are absolutely bitter. And Vera Choslovska brings that bitterness to the Olympic Games. Were you a gymnastics fan growing up? In the, every four years, 
I certainly was very aware of Nadia Comaneci. Okay, sure. Uh, in Montreal in 1976. Okay, so that's uh, one of your early... Yeah, one of my early Olympics memories. Yes. Well, there's a big one in 68 then. So Choslovska is there. She's competing um, in the all-around. And she wins the all-around. At least it appears as if she has won the all-around. She does a floor routine to the Mexican hat dance, which absolutely thrills the Mexican mm-hmm. crowd. Very shrewd <laughs> yes. uh, to, to compete to that song. And um, she thinks she has won. The judges have told her she has won. And then Soviet coaches start complaining to the judges and the judges suddenly change their scores. They change an earlier score, and suddenly they announce there's a controversial tie for the gold medal, um, a tie between Toslavska and a Soviet gymnast. I am dying to know what was said yeah. to compel the judges to change a score like that. Well, you remember growing up what the joke was, right, about Russian judges and Eastern European judges, you know, and the scores are 5.8, 5.8, 5.8, and from the Russian judge, a 2.3. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, it gets to the point. Right. A sport right. like gymnastics right. is so the Olympics are so thoroughly politicized that any sport in which there's sort of human judging going on is absolutely open to political. By the way, corruption. to go to go back to before the Olympics for a minute, I just read this about Cheslovska that in the spring she had signed a she had signed a letter that was signed by some of the leading lights of the Czech opposition movement, including Václav Havel. Yeah, the 2,000 Words Manifesto. The 2,000 Words Manifesto calling for a free press and uh, just liberal reforms in Czechoslovakia. And then she fled to the countryside because she feared she was going to be arrested, but she continued to train. Yeah, this is the story. Right, in the hopes that she would still be able to go to Mexico City for the Olympics. And she did things like she swung on vines in the forest. Right. And of course, what that made me think of... She practiced the balance beam on a fallen log. Right. So what that made me think of, of course, was... Uh, Rocky and Rocky Four. <laughs> sure, yeah. When he goes to Siberia yeah. in order to train against Ivan Drago and he's chopping wood and he's hauling huge stones and a wheelbarrow. Conventional training methods <laughs> will not <laughs> defeat Ivan so Drago. So now I'm thinking that he basically got all of his inspiration from Cheslovska. That's really he, interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to ask Sly. We'll have to ask Sly yeah. whether he, where he came up with that. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you're right. So Cheslovska was absolutely fearful that she was not going to be able to compete in the game. She was somewhat surprised when she was allowed to compete in the games. And she actually said on her way to the games, I am going there to sweat blood and defeat the invaders' representatives. Like, I'm going to beat the Soviets. And now suddenly she has defeated this Soviet gymnast, but the judges have been influenced by by Soviet coaches. There's a tie. She's on the medal stand. You know, two athletes, both on the top tier. They play the Czech national anthem first, and then they play the Soviet national anthem. And Vera Choslovska, in a gesture that makes a makes her a hero back home, she turns her head to the side and down. She's purposefully averting her gaze from the Soviet flag. She's refusing to acknowledge the Soviet national anthem. And again, she has turned her head to the right and down, just as she did at the last ceremony. This does not appear to be an accident. This is her medal stand protest against the Soviet Again, invasion. Again, at, sa- at the same Olympics as Smith and Carlos. Same ones. For which she paid a tremendous price. 
you know, it's on television, right? So the Soviet officials, the 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 Czech officials that are now Soviet friendly, they have the the tape. That's the end of her athletic career. Again, she's a hero with her countrymen and women back home, but the Soviet-dominated Czech government, they immediately put her into retirement. She loses her ability to travel. Uh, for years, she's not even allowed to go to sporting events in, Which in Czechoslovakia. Which so gratuitous. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. Everyone who signed that 2,000 Words Manifesto paid a dear price yes. for doing yes. so. Okay, so uh, turning to Smith and Carlos, um, let's start by talking about not the games themselves, but the project with which they were associated, uh, the a proposed boycott uh, as part of the Olympic Project on Human Rights, which launched in 1967. Yeah, right. Right at the very end of 1967, as you know, the, the organizer was Dr. Harry Edwards, who's a sociologist at, at San Jose State. And he sort of got into the boycott business. Um, he had arranged a boycott among the black football players at San Jose State in the fall of 1967. He himself had been an accomplished college athlete. That's right, at San Jose State. He had been a discus thrower and a basketball player. Then he went and got his uh, degree in soci- uh, PhD at Cornell and came back to San Jose State. And he was outraged that black students couldn't get housing in, in San Jose. So at this rally against racism at San Jose State College, he told the, the, the gathering and the press that the black student um, athletes, the, the, the black members of the football team, were going to boycott the upcoming football opener to protest how the administration was not doing anything about housing. And this is such a crazy story. The whole thing quickly um, derails the um, Black Panther Party, members of the Black Panther Party, they say they're going to come and support Harry Edwards. Member of the Hells Angels announced, we're going to come and fight the Black Panthers. Governor Reagan, Ronald Reagan, says, I'm going to send in the National Guard. You know, it's absolutely chaos. And condemns Edwards in particular. Oh, absolutely. Says yeah. he's 100% unfit to be an educator. The upshot is the game is canceled. Um, the college president rightfully realized, you know, what was about to happen. He canceled the game. And so this is when Edwards realizes, wow, we've got leverage, right? Black people don't have very much leverage in the United States in 1967, but black athletes, because, man, Americans love their sports, black athletes have a little bit of leverage. And this is kind of uh, the, the idea of athletes, and particularly college athletes, using their actual power to boycott games. Uh, There's been discussion that college basketball players would boycott the NCAA tournament uh, in order to get better compensation. To get paid. paid. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, We haven't seen it yet. But but this this has been sort of hanging over sports, I feel like, since the late 1960s. Right. I guess it really starts here in 67. And, And it's a weapon that's almost never deployed but I think there's, there's a persistent fear of it, nevertheless, because were it to be deployed, I think it would, it would have a tremendous effect on those who are running collegiate sports or even professional sports. Just two days ago, the football players for the University of Maryland team, um, they were outraged. So, you know, as Jordan McNair died in the spring. And this is a lineman for the University of Maryland right. who died during a practice right. uh, 
uh, I think in June. Yeah, it was in the spring. And uh, and the 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 conditions under which he died were very problematic. Right. There was inadequate medical inadequate attention. Care. Yeah. And it's now come out that the coaching staff uh, uh, engaged in, you know, really brutal tactics and techniques for berating their players. But despite this, uh, a booster, a, a prominent Maryland booster who gives hundreds of thousands of dollars, he just gave an interview in which he said it was McNair's fault. Rick, um, Rick Jacklich uh, uh, um, said Jordan McNair was not properly hydrating himself, essentially saying he killed right. himself. Right. I mean, he deserved right. this. And right. the players, when they saw and that And that is not the responsibility of the coaching staff right, at exactly. all yeah. to, to care to, about their students. To monitor him, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so what did the players do? They saw that this booster was going to be on the airplane on to, to travel to Michigan for the football game. And they said, if he's on the plane, we're not going. We're not going to play. Guess who wasn't on the right, plane? Right. The booster. Yeah. Man, athletes have power, right, if they act collectively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so back to 1967. Oh, yeah. So Edwards creates an organization, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. They threaten to boycott um, the 1968 Olympic Games. Black athletes will boycott the Games if a series of demands are not met. We will let you know about the future of your uh, Olympic team when we deem it proper and when we feel that you can handle that kind of information. Right, right now, we just don't think that you're ready. There's a lot of demands they want so Muhammad, Muhammad Ali to have his, his heavyweight championship restored. Right. Okay. They want Avery Brundage, the sort of famously racist, anti-Semitic president of the IOC, to be removed as president. Who, whose nickname was? Slavery Brundage. <laughs> yeah, that's what Redwoods <laughs> like to call right, him. They right. wanted more black coaches for the track and field team. Mm. They wanted the uh, all-white apartheid South African team to be expelled from the games, um, which they actually were. Right. This is an interesting part of the story of this decade in, yeah. in the Olympic movement, right, is that South Africa is temporarily barred from the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. Right, because they have an all-white Olympic team. They right. do not allow black South Africans right. to try out for that team. And then in 1968, again, under a threat of a boycott from many countries, right. South Africa is essentially banned from the Olympics. They are expelled from the Olympic movement. It's so interesting, Jonathan, how it happens. You know, first of all, you get these sort of nations of the so-called third world who threaten to boycott African nations, black African nations. If South Africa is there, we're not going to go. These are newly decolonialized countries Competing in, in the games, yeah. yeah. And there's some yeah. tremendous athletes, Kip Kenyo and um, a baby Bikila. And so the IOC wants these nations there. But in 1968, the IOC says, we don't care. South right. Africa's coming. Well, and the Soviet bloc also threatens well, to boycott. That's the key, right? Okay. So so black af black American athletes say they're going to boycott. The IOC doesn't do anything. And it's when the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union stands up and says, if South Africa is there, we are going to have to seriously consider boycotting these games. Threatened with that boycott, the IOC... They, they changed their, their minds, and they expelled South Africa. Okay, so as 1968 approaches, the big question now facing elite American athletes yeah. is whether or not to go to Mexico City. Yeah, if you're a black athlete, you're a politician in 1968, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, are you going to boycott? Are you not going to boycott? Um, black athletes were condemned for saying they would boycott. 
Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, after the assassination of Dr. King, he says he can't represent the United States at the games, and he gets a tremendous amount of, of criticism. You're not American. Don't you love your country? You need to leave this country. You know, the, the usual stuff. Um, other black athletes say they do want to go. Um, keep basketball. Here at UNC, Charles Scott, you know, the first black varsity basketball player, he goes. Um, he got a lot of criticism, actually, on this campus from other black students. You know, you need to do what Al Alcindor is doing. You can't represent the United States in 1968. It's a really tough right, position right. to be right. in. The black student movement Absolutely. condemned him the, for, for going. It was, a it, again, um, it's a difficult position to be in. You're a, you're a traitor if you don't go, and you're a sellout. You're an Uncle Tom if you do. Again, very difficult position for all black athletes to right. be in. But in the end... Very few athletes stayed home. Almost none. Yeah, there right. a couple of the basketball players stayed home. All right. the track and field guys went. This is their one chance right. for Olympic glory. There was some um, athlete, I forget who it was exactly, but he said there's this tension between the goal and the gold. Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. goal of, of, of civil rights and, 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 and racial freedom. But the gold, man, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. I want to compete. I want to win. I want the gold medal. In the end, there was no unanimous support for a boycott, so the boycott fizzled out. And the idea was individual athletes will protest however they want to. Right. Okay, so then that brings us to the games themselves. Right. And the event that Smith and Carlos ran in. Yeah. All sorts of amazing things happen. You know, 1968, Bob Beeman shatters the, the long jump record. I can never remember the number, but you probably it's know the exact. 29 feet, 2 inches. 29 feet, 2. I think it was 27.4. Something like that. Yeah, so he absolutely shatters. Altitude-aided, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, right. Altitude-aided, yeah. Right. Uh, but the, nevertheless. The thin air helps. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but two feet yeah. more? That was yeah. a remarkable yeah. Yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wyoming Atias, uh, one of the great Tennessee State Tiger Bells, she becomes the first person to repeat Mm -hmm. In the 100 meters, she had won in Tokyo in 64. She wins again in 68. Right. Um, I think Jim Hines is the first guy to break the 10-second barrier in the 100 meters. The records are just D falling Dick, everywhere. Dick Fosbury, right? The Fosbury flop. Yeah, right. he goes over upside down or wrong side up. I don't know right. what, what it the, was. The great high jumper. The great right. high jump, yeah. Right. Um, so right. all this happens, but you know, the big moment is the 200 meters. Tommy Smith wins gold. Peter Norman, the Australian silver, passes John Carlos at the last second. John Carlos gets bronze. They're on the medal stand. The national anthem is played, and they raise they raise their fists. I mean, it's it's very similar to what right. Chaslovska did. They raise their fists. They in a black power up, salute. In a black power salute, they walk up to the stand only in their socks. Right, uh, symbolizing the material poverty of black Americans. They're wearing beads around their necks. Yeah, Carlos is, and he later it's said this symbolized the, the victims of lynching, lynching in the United right, States. Right, yeah, right. and all three of them, including Norman, are wearing buttons for Harry Edwards' organization, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And I just, I, I had just read that uh, Norman got wind of the fact that Smith and Carlos were planning to do something on the medal stand. Right. And at the last second, said, "Can I join you guys?" And so he put the button on at the last minute to join them on the medal stand. In solidarity, in solidarity with their protest. For which he pays a very dear price when he returns to Australia. Right. So it's not just Smith and Carlos. That's right. All three of them, actually. He, it, it's guilt by association for Peter Norman. He, I mean, he is absolutely blackballed from the Australian sports scene. For what? 
for yeah. wearing a pin, a badge that says human rights. Right. Yeah. Olympic Project for Human yeah, Rights. Yeah, <laughs> that was his sin. All right, so Matt, what happens to Smith and Carlos after that event? They make their protests. They start walking off the track. Uh, the reporters who were there said racial slurs were hurled out of the audience at them by Americans, American tourists there. Mm -hmm. They raised their fists once again in defiance. The press immediately asked Tommy Smith what it meant. He called it, quote, a gesture of frustration. I'm frustrated with the slow pace of racial change in the United States. Um, but like we have seen with Colin Kaepernick, he dared to use the anthem, the moment of the national anthem to do this. And for this, most Americans absolutely attacked. Right. Him. And, and the, the, the sports media vilified him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, there's one quote I wanted to read. Uh, this is from Brent Musburger, who most people today know as a venerable college football announcer, sure. but was a sports columnist late 1960s. And he referred to Smith and Carlos as a pair of dark-skinned stormtroopers. All right, so black Nazis. Black Nazis. Yeah. And then he says, one gets a little tired of having the United States run down by athletes who are enjoying themselves at the expense of their country. Protesting and working constructively against racism in the United States is one thing, but airing one's dirty clothing before the entire world during a fun and games tournament was no more than a juvenile gesture by a couple of athletes who should have known better. The reason I'm so interested in that is mm -hmm. that we have been hearing the same effing complaint about <laughs> athletes yeah. for 50 years now. <laughs> yeah, where where can you protest? Right. When can you protest? Right. And, and and so the idea that they had it so good right. in 1968, black Americans, it's just, it's yeah. astounding. Well, the me. idea that the Olympics are a fun and games tournament when we all, everyone knows who's paying attention that they're right. thoroughly politicized. And I think it's important to note you know, Tommy Smith was that basically asked that, isn't this the wrong place in which to make this protest? And he said, no, this is the only place in which anyone gives me a, the attention in which I can um, make this, this gesture. And, and Matt, uh, to that point, um, all of this suggests that Smith and Carlos, at least, are vindicated in their decision not to boycott, right? Because having gone— right. And having done what they did, yeah, yeah, they created at least an image, and, yeah, an indelible, an image. indelible image that fifty years later we're still talking about, and we'll, and will surely still be talking about decades into the future. Whereas, yeah, had they stayed yeah, home, great point, yeah, right. Actually, Tommy Smith was one of the leading voices for the boycott. He he famously had a back and forth with Ralph Boston the uh, long jumper in Sport Magazine, in which Tommy Smith said why black athletes need to boycott, and Boston said why black athletes shouldn't boycott. Now, once he realized no one else was going to boycott, he thought right. he would go, and he'd use the games as a forum for, for, a pro for protest. But had he removed himself from these games? Not a single person would know the name Tommy Smith. Well, and in fact, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I've 
great respect for. We know him for many things. Yes. Almost nobody knows yeah. where he was and wasn't in 1968 during the Olympics. And I suppose that's a testament to just what an amazing basketball player well, he that, was. Yes. No, because yeah. Kareem had another narrative. Kareem had another that's story. Right. But think about the track guys. What else are they going to do? Um, the Olympic Games, that's the absolute pinnacle. Right. Um, I'm not downplaying what, what Alcindor or what Kareem did, yeah. but you know he had a future revenue source. He knew yes. he was going on to, yes. to the NBA. This is the one shot for, for Smith and Carlos, um, and they took advantage of it. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll wrap up. Sure. Uh, there's much, much more one could say about the 1968 Olympics. Again, what I find so interesting about it is all of the things, not only besides Smith and Carlos, but all of their backstory mm-hmm. uh, that, it, that just are not part of, I think, what people commonly know about them. Yeah, and I think it's it's difficult to look at that image of Smith and Carlos and, again, not think about what Kaepernick has been doing the last couple of years. And look, uh, very quickly, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, they paid a cost for this protest. They had tryouts with NFL teams. They were both decent wide receivers, you know, um, young men with a lot of speed. And they lost those tryouts immediately. Tommy Smith ended up kind of slowly working his way into the AFL. But like Choslovska, there was a cost with protest. Smith and Carlos, there was a cost with their protest. It's interesting. There's clearly as you say Kaepernick today. Kaepernick today, a cost to that protest. Although you know the Nike came along, I think right. uh, Kaepernick's Nike contract is something we're going to have to talk yes, about in the future absolutely. podcast. And how this new resurgence in athlete political activism, uh, which is in some ways the most vigorous it's been in almost fifty years, it, it, it went away after it a while. Went away. Yeah, now it's back. And now it's back, but in a very different context. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. All right, Matt. This was fun. Absolutely. Let's do it again. Yep. This has been the Agony of Defeat podcast. If you liked us, please like us, share, and subscribe. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Our Twitter handle is defeat underscore of. And we really want to thank our co-producers and social media whizzes, uh, Keaton Eberly and Olivia Corriere. And we will see you next time.